Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. You made it. You survived Christmas. Glad to have you with us. We have a wonderful show for you today. We have Amy Nordhues on the show to tell her story. And after we hear her story, she has a lot of valuable information that I think will help you. So I hope you've been enjoying our guests so far, our musical guest last week for our Christmas episode, Christmas with Jesus. So be sure to check that out if you didn't listen to it. It's a wonderful song. So I had to redo my intro today because when I was editing, I realized that there was some thumping noise that I have no idea what it was. And I found that I could not eliminate it post-production, which I usually can eliminate most noises, but it was just this thumping. I don't know if it was a construction or birds outside or what have you, but I didn't want to reschedule Amy's interview with the noise in the background because she's just amazing. So what I did is I put some soft background music in her interview, just where we're chatting, where we're getting to know each other and talking about some fun stuff. I didn't hear a whole lot of the thumping noises when it got more serious. So, and then I didn't have background music there, but I thought that the music was less annoying than the incessant thumping noise. So that's why I have that. I normally prefer to be it to be quiet. So <laughs> anyway, let me give you Amy's bio here. Amy Nordhues is a survivor of both childhood sexual abuse and sexual abuse as an adult at the hands of a mental health professional. She is a passionate Christ follower and expert on the healing God provides. She has a BA in psychology with minors in sociology and criminology. Her devotions have been published in The Secret Place through Judson Press. Her memoir, Prayed Upon Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse, won first place Inspire Christian Writers Great Openings Contest for Nonfiction. She blogs at emynardhues.com. A married mother of three, when she isn't spending time with her family, writing, reading, or creating photo books. She can be found laughing at her favorite comedians. So I'd like to give out a trigger warning. We will be talking about abuse by a therapist, sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse. We don't get graphic on her story. Her book goes into a lot more detail, and she has such a powerful story of healing. So without further ado, 
here is my conversation with Amy Nordhues. So please welcome Amy Nordhues to the show. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about your book today and your story. Um, but first, I like to open up the show with, you know, some fun things because, you know, I talk about dark topics all the time. So um, talk about your family first. You've got the whole horse named Chip. You have four dogs, a cat, three sugar gliders. We used to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This would be um, all thanks to my lovely oldest daughter, Emily. She is obsessed with animals and she has a horse named Chip. And we had, they eventually wore me down, she and my husband, to get one dog. And then they decided that dog was lonely and I agreed. So then we had two dogs. <laughs> And then she needed a teacup chihuahua, of course. So we eventually got one of those. And then she needed a dog that she could do tricks with. And I said, well, why can't you do tricks with Maggie, the chihuahua? And she said, because mom, she's afraid of the treats and of the clicker. <laughs> so then introduced a German Shepherd mix and, um, and a cat that she brought home from a church youth event that she swore was homeless and needed a home, so yes. We live kind of in a, a kennel, essentially. <laughs> a farm. <laughs> when she was little, yeah. When she was little, she had a, a a ferret which smelled, and we got rid of him. And she did have sugar gliders, which were amazing animals. But when she went away to college, she rehomed them because there there's a lot of you know things involved in taking care of them. So. Oh, and you're in Oklahoma. Yes. What's it like living in Oklahoma? I don't know. It's it's pretty where we live. A lot of people think it's flat and dusty and barren, but we live in the northeast corner, and it's it's really heat, uh, green and hilly and and quite pretty. Wonderful. Although yesterday it was seventy three degrees, and today it's like thirty three. So I don't know if you have those temperature drastic temperature changes like we do, but it's insane. Not usually here in Phoenix, but that's true. Right now yeah. it's 70 degrees outside. <laughs> they always say here, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. You're married to Barry, your husband, and your three kids. Now I see on your on your website that you love to watch comedians. Who's your favorite comedian? I have to know. Oh, Sebastian Maniscalco is by far my favorite. He's I wonderful. I don't know him. I don't know him at oh all. Oh my gosh. You've got to check him out. He's, he's got the New York accent and the Italian, um, uh, you know, dramatic, passionate parents upbringing. He's really funny. I will definitely check him out. Me and my husband love to watch different comedians. We like Jim Gaffigan a lot. Yeah, and I haven't gotten into him so much, and I'm not sure why, because my friends rave about him. I like Brian Regan. He's also very clean. Yes. And Nate Bargatze is kind of dry, but I love him too. And there's others. I, I just, I just love comedy. Yeah, like, um, let's see, Louis Anderson is so funny. And John Panette, John Panette's no longer with us. And I'm kind of old school on a lot of the comedians. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to check him out. So we're going to jump into your story, but first a little bit of background here to get us into the context. Set the scene for us. Were you raised in a Christian home? 
Yes, I was. Um, I was raised Catholic, and my mom did a really good job of teaching us about God and that God existed, and 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 about Jesus. And you know, we were always in church on Sunday. So yeah, I definitely grew up in a Christian home. Always believed that there was a God. What was your relationship with God like on a personal level? Yeah, I I didn't really know how to relate to Him on a personal level. Um, I wanted to, but I just. And I felt like there was a flaw in me that I couldn't do it. He felt very formal and far away. And I feel like as I got older, that the relationship was really more based on fear and guilt um, than an actual, you know, give and take relationship. You know, I just, I just felt like I'm a terrible person if I don't go to church on Sunday and, mm. um, and, and wanted desperately to go to heaven. And I can remember being a young child and fearing that my entire family would go to heaven and I would go to hell. So I don't know where I developed all of these things, but I definitely had like an anxiety. Um, like, I hope I'm, I hope I'm on the good side. I hope he's proud of me. But, you know, as I got older and life was hard and unfair, I ended up building up a lot of resentment towards him because I thought, I don't know that I agree with the system of yours. Like, you know, I didn't really ask to be here and I'm supposed to be really grateful all the time. Um, and you, I didn't think he could answer me. And I felt like I just had the Bible and that was it. And it was kind of like, good luck understanding that. Mm. Um, and I prayed, but I didn't understand until much, much later in my life that God could even respond. I thought it was more, you know, thinking out loud and he could hear everything that you said, but it was like, you had to wait to help to get to heaven to get an answer. And mm. the older I got, the more angry that made me and the more discouraged that made me. I, I know otherwise now, but that was kind of my, my growing up. I suppose you're, you're going to get into when that changed for you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's really hard growing up and you know, there were all so those many, years. And there were so many rules and I just, it just didn't make sense to me. And, you know, sometimes I, I chuckle now that God was more of a, a formal gold plated chalices, crystal God. And I was more of a paper plates, Dixie cup kind of girl. Oh. <laughs> and it was just like, like, I felt just like out of place, um, even in church, like. It's a very common feeling. Yeah. I think that. I apologize. There is a weather siren going off here. Oh, is that what that noise is? That's okay. what that noise is. So it'll pass. Very good. So you've had more of your fair share of abuse, which we're going to hear about, um, from teachers, coaches, priests, um, and then your therapist. Um, so share with us what you're comfortable with about your childhood sexual abuse that you experienced. Yeah, I was really young, around three, and it was a it was a family friend. It was at nighttime, and you know that began my um, longstanding fear of the dark and fear of nighttime that I didn't get over until I was in my mid thirties. Mm. And it just sort of, I heard another one of your guests say it's like it, abuse changes your DNA and kind of changes your blueprint. Um, mm -hmm. And it definitely puts you on a different trajectory and um, sort of gives you a new set of beliefs about yourself, just that, um, you know, you're not worth as much as a regular person. Um, your body's not your own. You don't have the same rights as a regular person. And, you know, mm -hmm. one of the worst ones is this wouldn't have happened to you if there wasn't something seriously flawed in you. And so that kind of puts a target on your back and kind of, that's why I feel like I got taken advantage of many more times. 
Mm-hmm. When I was 12, I was taken advantage of by our priest, as was one of my sisters. And, you know, that was really hard because, you know, he's a representative of God, obviously, and like a father figure. And that made attending church even harder for me. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea of calling a priest father was really hard for me. Um, oh, yeah. And then, as you mentioned, it was, you know, an incident with a swim coach and a um, friend, um, a massage therapist, a physician. Um, And those were all kind of one-time incidences, but they just heap on the shame, heap on the guilt, heap on the self-hatred, the the belief that something's not right with you. And then lastly, my, this therapist and church elder when I was 40 was the last abuser. Mm, Boy, that that is just horrible. I'm, I'm so sorry that you had to go through all of that. It is, it's horrible just to go through one abuser, but all of those right after the other, um, I think you mentioned in your book that you developed eating disorders and depression. Is that right? Yeah, I, I remember depression starting for me around the age of 12 and really I didn't shake it until recent years and anxiety. And then I think I was maybe around 15, I developed an eating disorder and that drug on for, I don't know, maybe four years before I got treatment for it. I think that was about trying to grasp at some sort of control over something Mm -hmm. um, so that I could feel like I'm not just adrift in the sea being thrown around and being, um, yeah, I I don't know the words that I was trying to say, but just that it was something that was mine and that I could be in charge of, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is something that's taken away from you when you're molested. Oh, big time. Big time. Now down the road, you decided to get therapy. What brought you to that decision? You mean the more recent episode? Is that what you're referring to? When you first started to see this particular therapist? Yes. A longstanding depression, anxiety, um, just issues that I wanted to work on in my marriage. My marriage was very broken. Um, issues surrounding parenting and just these kind of longstanding sexual abuse related issues. I started attending a Celebrate Recovery in 2012 and met a lot of great people. And that's when my relationship with God became uh, more of a personal relationship. Mm -hmm. And this therapist was highly recommended. Um, He was a church elder and I really recommended my pastor. I I really respected my pastor and the pastor's Mm -hmm. wife recommended this, this doctor and therapist. So, um, a friend actually had an appointment that she didn't need and could tell I needed it and offered it to me and literally drove me to his office and sort of said, hi, I, I don't need my appointment, but she does. And he just took me in like that, which made me feel embarrassed a little bit, but also a little bit indebted to him. Like, thank you. So that is how it began and why I ended up there. Wow. I know a lot of people don't even know how to find a therapist and, you know, how could you just I mean, back in my day, we had the yellow pages. You just go in there and and pick somebody that looked promising and you didn't know what you were going to get, but you were recommended to go oh, to yeah. this therapist. Oh yeah. These friends of mine that just raved about him, that he was just the greatest and sweetest. And he was um, on the prayer team at, I started to attend the church that hosted the Celebrate Recovery where he was an elder and he was on the prayer team and so yes, he came highly recommended. So you started going to therapy with this fellow. And I know from the book that he started the grooming process immediately. How did he establish 
trust with you? You know, that's a good question. I think I gave him a lot of trust right off the bat based on the people that trusted him, uh, such as my pastor and his wife and different friends. But I still was reserved and anxious as you are when you start seeing a new therapist. Um, and I think it was just his kindness and the consistency of the relationship and just knowing I had this I thought safe place that I could go to every week where somebody wanted to know me and wanted to hear about my week and who wanted to support me and lift me up. And I didn't realize I had such a void, you know, in that area in my life that, um, that when he filled it, it was just sort of intoxicating, like, you know, like a drug that I needed, you know? So I, I became attached to him pretty quickly and became attached to that sort of attention and, you know, just feeling known and heard and all the things that we all need. Um, and then he, you know, kind of upped the ante by making me feel special eventually. And that, that really, you know, struck a chord with me that, you know, sort of an old childhood need, maybe, I don't know, but um, it became something that I desperately wanted more of. Mm. Most people so, associate this with children falling for this, but how old were you again when you I was 40. You were 40, 40 and you're already married. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And did, did you feel that something was off somehow at all? In the well, beginning? You know, it was kind of a good cover because he was such a weird individual. Um, so odd and quirky and goofy, not what you would expect from a 65 year old physician, um, that it was sort of off-putting and it kind of threw you off. I mean, you felt like he was weird, but then it kind of was sweet and endearing. Um, and so you, you know, we kind of got over that initial hump and that initial awkwardness. Um, and then, yeah, things that I thought were odd kind of became sweet or cute. And I didn't really notice a huge red flag until Let's see, I started seeing him, I think in April until December. And that was when he offered me a shoulder rub or a foot rub for Christmas. And that definitely made me uncomfortable. Now, starting on day one, I realized in retrospect, he had started the grooming right away. Mm -hmm. And yes, there were little things that would make me, maybe make me feel embarrassed. But then I would think I was just being oversensitive. Like from day one, he would get a blanket out of his cupboard and look at my clothing, what I was wearing and try to find one that matched what I was wearing in a kind of a silly, playful way, and then come over and cover me up with it. Well, mm -hmm. was that uncomfortable? Yes. Did I think he was seducing and manipulating me? No. I just thought it was his goofy self trying to maybe put me at ease or um, by just being kind of playful. Well, yeah. Does it that sounds kind of grandfatherly to me, you know, and Oh, he's trying to comfort me with a blanket yes. and I wouldn't have thought anything of somebody offering me a blanket. Right. You know, cause when mm -hmm. you think about the age difference, you know, it kind of makes you look mm -hmm. at things differently. It's mm -hmm. not like this was someone my age mm -hmm. um, that would come into my personal space that way. But for him, it was like, well, it's just him. It's he's just being silly or trying to make me feel more comfortable in an uncomfortable situation, which is therapy. Mm -hmm. He used a lot of, a lot of tricks that yeah, predators you know, use. Yeah. And you know, when you don't understand, first of all, I've never encountered a sociopath that I know of in my life. I have never been groomed for sexual abuse. I have never been in a relationship where there was a long standing, methodical, insidious, you know, trickery going on. I've never encountered that in my life. I've read about it. 
Um, but it's not like they do too much at once. There's one little thing and you kind of excuse it or blow it off or minimize it. And then a little down the road, there's another one, but you don't understand that they're linked. I didn't understand until I completely got away from him and I saw him for a year and a half. And I can remember telling attorneys, well, the first red flag was in December and they, and they were like, no, the first red flag was on day one. And I started connecting the dots and thinking, oh my gosh, was I groomed? I think I was. And then that's when I saw the whole picture. Mm -hmm. I did not see it. You don't see it when you're in it. No, no. And, and people on the outside don't understand that. Yeah. All. And you know, when you don't think like a sociopath, which I've said before, that's a very good thing. Does it make you a little naive? Yes. But in my mind, it was more likely that I was misunderstanding something he did or said than the fact he was an evil predator who was trying to take advantage of me. So, you know, my personality being sensitive and empathetic, I would always give someone the benefit of the, the doubt and assume I'm not, that I misread it or something. Yeah, my viewers and listeners know that I was groomed by a guidance counselor in the seventh grade and got as far as touching me, but I was able to escape before I got any further. I had so no sorry. idea that I was being groomed because, yeah, he was a Christian and and he was really nice and listened to me. And, and the same thing that you saw after you're out of it, you look back and you're like, oh, he had me sit in the beanbag chair he had his hands on my knees because he was, you know, setting me up and seeing what I would do. And right. it's, it's scary to look back and, and see all that. One thing that I noticed about some things that he would say to you that really made me angry is that he used the Holy Spirit against you. He would talk about, this is, this is the Holy Spirit that just made me sick. <laughs> I agree. You know, when I was a new believer, I, I was always a Christian, but I called myself a new believer because I was, God had come alive to me and was personal to me and it was meaningful to me. And so that kind of set me up for being vulnerable to somebody that was a Christian elder and a Bible, I say scholar, I don't know if he was necessarily a scholar, but he knew more than I did. Um, so the spiritual world was kind of something new to me and it was kind of coming alive to me as being much more prevalent than I realized and much more real than I realized. So yeah, when he said the Holy Spirit, you know, was guiding him, I, I thought that was a great thing that, that I was in good hands. And yeah, it makes me sick now to think about how many times he said he was representing Jesus um, in my life or standing in for Jesus, how he can do that and start sessions in prayer while seeing people as complete objects or trash is beyond me. I think only a sociopath has that ability mm -hmm. and I'm glad that I can't relate. Because mm. I absolutely can't relate. <laughs> I think that's the highest form of abuse is spiritual abuse because you're actually, when you're abused, your viewpoint of God has changed or it's damaged. So on top of all the other abuses, that is just the cherry on top too. I agree with you. Ugh. And it robs people, you know, not only are they abused, then they're robbed of the, maybe the one source of hope that they have or would have had if they give up and turn their back on God. So it's just, like you said, the worst thing you can do to another human being. Mm. Now, when was the day that you noticed that the, a huge red flag, the line was definitely crossed. There's no doubt about it. And 
now you're panicking. Yeah, that was a year and a month after I started seeing him. He had already weaseled his way to be sitting closer to me. And so we were sitting next to each other in kind of an oversized chair. And he, all of the therapy was involved prayer and praying, inviting Jesus into broken places and praying away in any evil spirits that were there. And so he was doing a, a, a prayer like that. And I was more emotional than I had been before. And I kind of realized when the prayer was over that he had more pulled me onto his lap a little bit more than beside me. And before I could even really register anything, he assaulted me and there was no confusion on my part. I knew it was wrong. I just started crying and saying, I can't survive this. I won't survive this. I don't want to survive this. I can't believe you would do this to me. I thought he was like sent to me like a gift from God to help mm -hmm. me heal from all the you know males in my life that took advantage of me and I just didn't know how I would get over it that was when a line was drawn and and I left that day just not even knowing how I was gonna keep functioning and sadly he had isolated me from everyone from my friends and I felt like I wanted to tell my husband so badly but I was so afraid and I had so much guilt and shame about it that I thought if I told him what happened rather than just hearing me and being angry, like he probably would have been, he would have in my uh, victim mind thought he's going to say, well, wait a minute now. So how, why was he sitting next to you again? Oh, well, that was my neediness and my defectiveness that I wanted him to sit by me, you know, and it just all, everything I said seemed to stem back to you're flawed. It's somehow about you. And so I reached out to a close friend of mine and told her what happened. And she said, well, maybe he was just trying to teach you to stick up for yourself, you know, since you were abused as a child and all. And in that moment, what? I know in that moment, I knew, well, I'm all alone. I'm not telling anyone else. There isn't anyone else that can help me if she doesn't, if she's not going to help me. And she knew me really well and knew him really well, then I don't know who else I'm going to talk to, because at least she understood what it's like to see a therapist, et cetera. And so I just told myself, well, you're going to have to do it all on your own. And so then that left me with the doctor, the only one that I had to turn to. So when he called me and called me and called me that weekend and eventually asked me to come in his office, I felt like, well, it's the least that you can do after what you've done to me. And I went there nervous and afraid, but he managed to produce one tear and tell me that he had just wanted me to feel loved. He, and fill in the blanks, you know, he didn't mean to cross the line, but he just wanted me to feel loved. Mm. And I immediately, I don't know, a flip was switched in me. And I heard myself go from saying, I can't survive this. I just want to die to, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So I took all the blame and started apologizing to him as if, had I not been so broken or needy or whatever, and I had not, you know, liked that he sat next to me, then he clearly wouldn't have slipped up and done something like this. You know, and they're masterful at oh, yeah. making you think that you made the decision for them to sit next to you, which I didn't, but I mm. felt so much shame about liking the, the physical nurturing, nothing sexual, just him sitting near me. Then mm -hmm. I thought that was so shameful and so pathetic about me that I didn't want anyone to know that part. And I had to tell them that part to tell them what he did. So, you know, that's how perpetrators keep their victims trapped is that they know that there's some piece of it that makes us feel ashamed or some piece of it that we can't untangle 
um, like where does the fault lie? And, and they know that. So sadly to finish that story, I eventually went back because people, I had no, I had nowhere else to go. Yeah. People who have not been abused by and, people with a power differential do not understand how paralyzing it is to a victim even as an adult. Yeah. I mean, I was so attached and I needed support and there was nobody else in my world left. He was the only one left because, you know, I thought who's going to understand this weird therapy that we do. Like, I don't want to tell anybody how, you know, but I thought it was, it was blessed by God and it was a, a good thing. And that, that, that there were, you know, legitimate spiritual breakthroughs happening, but I certainly didn't want to really talk about it with anybody else. So he had me so isolated that I thought, well, he, he feels so guilty. He'll never do it again. And again, those, that was my interpretation. He didn't feel a bit of guilt, but I thought, well, if I had done that to somebody, I would just be devastated and filled with guilt. And I would just want nothing more, but to make it up to them. So that is what I gave him. I gave him, you know, the view through my own lens. Does that make sense? Yes. Again, yes. didn't know he was a sociopath. So could only assume that he feels like I would feel. Oh, he had so many layers like an onion and he just peeled them all back. I mean, every, every trick in the book he used. Yes. And you had so many needs and you were so vulnerable. And I mean, you didn't have a chance because there wasn't anybody else helping you. And there could have been, but if my closest friend didn't get it, I wasn't going to try anybody else because she, she knew everything that had gone on since day one, you know, she knew all the little, some things I didn't even know were red flags that I ran by her that I know now they're red flags, but she thought they were fine too. And I just, I don't know. I just, I couldn't handle the embarrassment of telling another friend, you know, yeah, we were sitting close to each other and yeah, he was kind of like a father figure and yeah, I felt safe with them. I just felt like such an idiot. Now you did get out. Yeah. How in the world did that happen? Yeah. Um, that was May. I got out the first week of July. So, you know, he held off for a while after that assault because he had to, and then he eventually amped things back up. He started hinting at, at sexual things and I was horrified because I already thought the emotional intimacy might be inappropriate, meaning, and it was not on my end. I saw him as a father figure, but he started telling me, you know, he loved me and nobody could love me as much as he does. And, you know, he'd marry me if he could. And I knew all that was wrong. So I was desperately trying to get out and I was just praying day and night, God, you like, if you just give me a little bit more time, I can fix this. Like, I don't know what he's doing, why he's going off on this tangent. Because again, I didn't think anything. I didn't realize we had been on this path for a year and a half. I thought it had just sort of started in the last like month or so. And I thought, um, he's confused. I don't know. There's some issue there, something weird with his mom, but I'll fix it so I can have my safe place back. So just, just give me a little bit of time. And of course, God kept, you know, reaching out to me in various ways, mm. trying to throw me a lifeline. And so I was kind of already in that mode, but I was so attached for whatever reason. Um, I mean, there are reasons, but I won't get into them. Just so many ways that he had his hooks in me, um, that I couldn't leave. Like he had told me it would kill him. If I ever left, it would devastate him. And I felt like, oh. well, now after all he's done for me, I can't just abandon him. And he told me how broken he was and about his childhood and his marriage and how he always felt alone and different and never had any friends. And 
you know, how his dad was abusive, which I think is a flat out lie, but anything that could provoke sympathy from me or empathy from me. Um, he had stopped charging me. So I felt guilty about that. So there were a lot of reasons it was hard to leave. And I, I desperately wanted to get out on my own without anyone in the whole entire universe ever knowing. And, and I couldn't do it. And so as it got, as I got deeper and deeper into this and was panicking more and more, it was like, oh my gosh, I've got to get out, but I can't get out. So I eventually reached out to uh, my close friend again, who was the pastor's wife. And I told her everything. And then her husband walked through the room, my pastor, and I told him everything. And he said, what do you need? And I said, I just need help getting out. If you could just sit with me for one, my sessions were three hours long at this time. If you could just sit with me for a three hour session, I know I cannot go back to heat if I don't have someone with me. He's going to weasel his way back in. He'll cry. Mm -hmm. He calls me. He'll make me feel guilty. And I know I'll cave. So that's what I did. I sat um, with them for three hours and um, true to form, the doctor called nine times in the first two hours. And I would just cry and listen to the voicemails. And, um, and I felt almost like caving eventually mm -hmm. I started feeling guilty again and like, and how can I turn him in after all he had done for me? That was good. Just thought at the end it was bad. And, uh, but I had that support there to obviously say absolutely not. And when that session was up, I felt that the, the, the tie, at least one tie had been severed and I knew that I was free and I wouldn't have to go back. Mm, thank God for your pastor and pastor's wife. You don't know how rare that is to have somebody that that understood what you went through and would go alongside of you to help you thank god for them yes yeah, yeah. if you know i i don't know what he was thinking in his head but he you know acted as if he believed me and he took action right away he confronted him about a week later and obviously told him to step down as elder yeah at yeah. the very least step I mean, one on. yeah <laughs> man belongs in prison. Yes. Thank you. And, but sadly churches, I felt like I was, he stood by me, you know, in the beginning and did the right thing, but then it goes into politically correct PR mode and damage control mode. And then next thing you know, the victim and the abuser are just sinners that are in need of help. And we just want to help you both get the help that you need. And it does, and it moves way far away from, like you said, a criminal who just can committed a crime and it turns into two broken souls in need of help and that was just absolutely devastating and infuriating because yeah. you're right he belongs in prison and your legal team decided it was best for you not to go through a trial and i don't know maybe that it may have been the best choice for your situation why yeah, is that therapist abuse therapist sex with a client is only illegal in half of our state so when I turned to an attorney for, for advice who was a specialist in this area of therapist abuse and clergy abuse, she advised me that it would be brutal for myself and my family to go through a criminal trial and that, and that the doctor would likely walk because it's not illegal here. Hmm. And so I settled for um, the medical board um, and they, the medical board allowed him to surrender his license. And then I pursued a malpractice civil suit because those were the only two options available to me for justice. That is something. It's something. And it was healing to at least do something. At least he's not out there doing this to somebody else. Hopefully not. Hopefully he not. cannot practice um, as a 
psychiatrist in this state, that's at least a blessing. And I got to talk to another victim who was still seeing him at the time. And it was a real blessing when she thanked me for helping her get away from him. And I said, I remember saying, well, when did you leave? And she said, I didn't. She got away because I turned him in and they took his license and he pretended to retire. That is Mm -hmm. what freed her from the bondage she was in with him as well. Wow. And hers was much longer than mine. And, and I really feel for her. Mm, I'm glad that she got out. Yeah. Now I wanted to circle back to your husband and you said you were afraid to tell him and reading your book, he sounds like a wonderful man. And he was so protective of you in the aftermath. He was, um, it was a rocky road to get there. Um, when I first told him and I told him everything, every detail, because that's just who I am. And I'm very honest. And I just wanted him to know every single thing. I was later advised by a psychologist who is often a court, uh, witness for therapist, clergy abuse, an expert witness. And he, it was really healing when he asked me, have you told your husband? And I said, yes. He said, what did you tell him everything? I said, yes. He said, well, that's a shame because the first thing I do when I sit down with couples in this situation is inform the spouse that your wife was a victim of a crime and victims of crimes don't owe explanations to anyone. Um, but obviously for the sake of my marriage, I wanted my husband to know everything. And he initially interpreted it as a mutual affair as I feared that he would. And it was like my worst nightmare coming true. So now I've already lost, I mean, the betrayal and the, the devastation from what was done to me. And then I had to witness right in front of me. Now my biggest fear coming through is now I'm going to lose my marriage and my family. I already had to lose my church, my friends, everything. And so it was, it was an awful thing to go through. And I knew he needed the time to process. I knew, I knew if I was confused that it was going to be hard for him, but it was very painful to go through. I gave him that time and that space. And I can remember telling him, I, you know, I understand that you're going to need time to process your emotions over this, but I cannot be the one you process with because I am dying and barely keeping my head above water myself. Mm -hmm. I can't be like your source of support for this. And anyway, fast forward, you know, he, he figured out pretty quickly that, you know, none of that was in my character and that he knew I was looking for, you know, that I would have been drawn in by the idea of a loving, safe father figure. And, you know, he'd have to speak to his healing process, but he got to the place where he knew that wasn't something that I would have ever wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when he really thought through the sordid details of it all, it, it was humiliating and shameful and there was nothing loving about it. I mean, I felt, you know, really more like a prostitute and used. And so he, he saw that in time and then he was extremely supportive and, um, Like I said, he came home when the medical board came to interview me. We went to that meeting together and, you know, it was horrible. But the cool thing is, is that God um, sort of destroyed, you know, our marriage so that he could rebuild it into something much stronger and much more amazing than it ever was before. Um, We didn't really grow up with role models of doing, you know, loving intimacy, loving closeness, emotional Mm -hmm. connection. And we have that now. Um, I wouldn't recommend anybody to go through the situation, but God definitely can bring amazing things out of these kind of traumas. And my marriage was the best one. 
I'm glad you told that part of your story because it's really hard for those around us that love us to hear those stories. Um, my husband knows that I've been abused by a couple people. I made the choice not to tell him every single detail because I knew that he wouldn't want to hear some of those details. And he told me he does not want to hear every little detail. He knows bits and pieces. He knows what he needs to know. He's very supportive. But I guess um, your poor husband was, you know, hit over the head with a two by four. And it's really hard for them to process yeah. their grief. And they need help, you know, sorting through all that stuff. But I'm, I'm glad he came out on the other side. Yeah, I'm really glad. I found a website called Tell Therapy Exploitation Linkline, and they just deal with victims of uh, therapists and clergy abuse, most of them adults, I think. Um, and they have some good articles on there about spouses as secondary victims. And, you know, even though it was hurtful at first for my husband to react that way, you know, I think he and I both realized pretty quick that, you know, I was the primary victim, but there are secondary victims and my children were mm -hmm. included in that. And it did so much damage to my marriage and my family, which just absolutely enrages me, um, which is one of the reasons I wanted to speak out and fight back because, you know, there's more than just me that was hurt. And, you know, there's people in, in I don't care about the sociopath, but there's people in his world that he hurt and there's friends that he groomed and mm -hmm. um, people all around him. He had to groom to have this little, you know, setup that he did taking advantage of clients. And so, yeah, it's dev devastating all around. What's the name of that website? I want to make sure that our listeners can access it's, that. It's tell, which is an acronym for therapy exploitation link line. I Googled therapist abuse and it was one of the things that popped up. If you email them, there's, um, like a host of survivors that will email you back. Victims are also welcome to email me through my website and I will always reach out, you know, respond to anyone who reaches out to me. But oh, tell is a good is a good resource. Oh we'll definitely make sure that's in the show notes. We want to go over for the listeners, what are the warning signs that a therapist, a priest, a coach is trying to groom you in order to take advantage of you? I mean what's the line between being professional and being kind, and then there's the grooming. And you mentioned some of them already, but maybe make a quick little list. Yeah, and it's hard to answer that for because they'll each look a little bit different depending on, you know, whether we're referring to a therapist or a coach, but um, there will always be someone who is, I, I shouldn't say always, they will typically be someone that's well-liked, well-loved in the community. They have to groom all of those around them before they can do things like this. You know, as far as with children, uh, when I was reading the devil inside book, you know, he, he talks a lot about how, you know, they will have, a, you know, they'll be more interested in kids than your average person. They will pay more attention to them and there will be a lot more physical touch and interaction with them. Just speaking to, to the adult therapist abuse, um, a therapist will not um, cross boundaries such as, you know, touching clients. They will never, they won't cover you up with a blanket. They may shake your hand and they may ask you if you want a hug when you leave, that's it. There won't be anything else. There won't be any sitting close, any hand holding, um, any physical nurturing at all. If you, you know, a therapist, an ethical therapist will 
teach you how to take care of yourself. They will never try to step into the caretaker role. They will never, they should never be playing mom or dad um, or savior. Um, they should be helping you become stronger, not creating a dependency on them, like um, the nurturing and being available for phone calls or texts or emails anytime you need. An ethical therapist is not available to you 24-7. They should be available to you for 45 minutes once mm -hmm. a week, and they, you should pay for your session mm -hmm. always. Um, yeah, you may go over, you know, 15 minutes or something in a session, that's fine, but they'll never be more than an hour session. A, a, an ethical therapist won't share personal information about themselves, except mm -hmm. little tiny details that might come up where they're trying to make a connection with you. But, you know, of course, nothing that would make you feel sorry for them because mm -hmm. then they're no longer your therapist. Now you are responsible for them and now you can't unload on them. Mm, um, they will, they will always be an objective soundboard that, you know, they should be like that person that you assume can handle anything and doesn't have any other life, you know, so that you aren't burdened at all by anything they're going through. Um, and then, you know, it's fine to, it's a, it's a tough one on, you know, you want your therapist to like you and you want to feel like they care about you so that you can open up more to them. But, and so it's okay that they care about you, but they should never make you feel like you are special, more special than their other clients, receive privileges that the other clients don't. Those things are all dangerous. So there's definitely an, a detachment. They shouldn't be like crying, crying. No or anything no, like that. No, and it's fine if they tear up and show some compassion and empathy. You want that, but you should they should not then be the one that you're comforting. You should never be worrying about their feelings or what's going on with them. They should share nothing with you that you know makes them portrays them as um broken in any way or needy, nothing in that regard. Mm, really good good list there. Very definitive list that will help a lot of people to see the difference between, oh, my therapist is being friendly and kind, but not crossing the line. Yeah. And there, you know, there's the type of abuse I had, which was more of a straightforward sexual abuse, but then I'm, I'm hearing from so many victims of therapist mm -hmm. abuse, these situations where the therapist wants to step in as the hero and the savior and, oh, here, let me comfort you and here and let me rub your hair and hold your hand and I'll love you. You know, you deserve so much love and I'll give you all the love you never got. And that is absolutely abusive. Mm -hmm. They cannot maintain that stance for one. And eventually they're either going to abandon the client or, I mean, even just move away. That level of intensity cannot be maintained. And then the client is left just absolutely devastated in the fetal position. Like, I don't know how to function now because they've been my lifeline. They've been everything for me. And so it's, it's hard for some of them to see, well, my therapist is just really loving. It's just the only thing that changed is that now she, you know, can only see me now once a week and, and only for one hour. And, and now she, um, you know, she said, we can't do that anymore. You know, she can't pull my hand or comfort me or cuddle me, you know, I try to tell them, yeah, no, that was never loving in the beginning, you know, fostering your dependency on them so that you're devastated when that ends or lessens is absolutely abusive. There is nothing loving about it. It's self-centered on the therapist's part, their mm -hmm. desire to feel needed or wanted. I'm not really sure. Mm. And we definitely want to talk about your healing after all this mess. 
I mean, how in the world can you heal from something like that? And are you now afraid of therapy? <laughs> yeah, um, leery, but not afraid. I, I reached out to a therapist after my abuse. I didn't want to, but I realized that it was just, my emotion was way more than any friends could handle. Mm -hmm. And I did a year of EMDR therapy with her and it was helpful. And it was good to go to someone who I just went and I did the therapy and I paid and I left. I didn't, there was no relationship there. I don't know if I liked her. I don't know if she liked me. It didn't matter. And that was really, that was really nice. Um, now, if you read the book, you'll know that that relationship ended badly, but even then I'm not soured on the idea of all therapists. I, years later, when my, when the abuse started to take a toll on my marriage and my family, I sought out a therapist here in town and he was a male even. Um, and he was very ethical and helped me, you know, when my life was falling apart. Do I want to go see a therapist anymore in my life? No, not really. Um, but it isn't because I am afraid or because I don't see value in it. And then tell me what was the first part of the question? Oh, the healing. What, what tools did you use to facilitate your healing? I mean, without a therapist. Yeah, the EMDR helped, but I really think my faith was what helped the most. And when I say that, I didn't want to lose the close connection that I now had formed with God. And I didn't want to let this abuse and this trauma throw me back into that lonely place of bitterness and shutting everyone out and hating the world and, you know, not getting close to anyone and not taking any risk. I just didn't want to go back to that place. And so, so that was one piece of it. And then, you know, I, I worked on forgiving my abuser just for the same reason. I didn't want him to have any of my energy at all. And that was a process to go through, but I feel like God helped me do that. And then the last piece for me was addressing the lies that I was believing about myself that kind of set me up to be abused, mm -hmm. just the low self-esteem and the self-hatred and the, just the fact that what I did was too disgusting and too horrible to be forgiven. Even if I didn't, even though I knew it wasn't my fault. And even though I knew I didn't want anything that happened, the fact that it happened at all made me feel guilty and ashamed. And the fact that I couldn't leave sooner made me hate myself. And so I just, I guess, cause I like to write, I like wrote love letters to myself from God and just sort of spoke his truths into me over and over and over. And I would combat, you know, his truths with, but, but look what I did and look what I allowed. And then I would come back with what he would say. And I did that in the form of poetry. And one of my poems is in the book. And that was the most healing um, tool that I used. And, you know, even if you don't write, you know, you can find a scripture or two that speaks of, to God's love for you, that you're his perfect creation. And just every time you have those negative thoughts, um, or feelings of shame creep back in, you can um, just blast them with that scripture just over and over and over. And it's okay if you don't even believe it at first. It's okay if you still think um, that you're a terrible human being, but do it. And over time, it does sink in. And in time, I could see a shift and I could, I could see and feel the self-hatred lifting. And, you know, in the book, I kind of come up with a new set of rules based on who God says that I am. And that was extremely healing and cool to see that transformation happening. Wow. Amen. 
And I, I hate to not mention at the very beginning needing to reach out to somebody who could relate. In the very beginning, when you get out of abuse, it's survival mode only. You're not thinking about forgiveness or, right. um, or even maybe God or combating these faulty beliefs. That was all down the road. In the beginning, all I wanted to know was, was it my fault? And am I the only one on the planet this happened to? Yep. And so reaching out to tell or other, you know, or people can reach out to me that's all you need to know in the beginning. And, and you're just really trying to keep your head above water in those early days. And, and you need to be told as many times as you need to hear it for as long as you need to hear it, that you're not alone. And it was not your fault. So I just, I just didn't want to not mention that because the things I was talking about are much more down the road and it would sound overwhelming to somebody that's in the early stages. Like oh I, yeah. This is definitely a journey or, or oh, yeah. a healing journey we're never going to be a hundred percent healed this right. out of eternity, but it is a journey. And sometimes we one step forward, two steps back, but we keep right. moving forward. And you offered some tools that I, I didn't know about. I mean, that's brilliant. Uh, writing letters to yourself from God. That's, that's amazing. And poetry. We've had some poets on, the show before poetry is wonderful form of expression i'm a, a singer songwriter and when i left my abuser i used the music as a healing tool and i wrote songs about about what i went through and others so i always like to hear all the tools out there not everybody is the same something that may help me may not help somebody else but they may relate to what you just said right. in I your journey. Got to meet another author and survivor, and they use painting. Painting, um, yeah. And I, actually, I know several victims who are artists, and they express their pain in their drawings or their paintings, which mm -hmm. is really cool because I can't draw anything. <laughs> <laughs> or, and I cannot sing either. So it's a good thing I can oh. write poetry. <laughs> yeah, I like to paint. I don't. I don't have time to paint, but painting is, is wonderful. I did one of those where you have a, a snack and you can go and paint something and they oh, teach yeah. you how to paint and they have, yeah. they have one that, you know, it's paired with wine or snacks yeah. and those are fun. I did a painting of my, uh, my dog who had now passed away and that was fun. I'm not like a huge, really good painter, but yeah, <laughs> we all came up with pictures of our dogs and it was it was it was relaxing and it was fun and something that we had to focus on and not worry about all the stuff outside for right. just an hour or two right so absolutely i also feel like another tool for healing that some victims want to do and some don't is coming forward it can be devastating to come forward you can be not believed mocked um even you know just the feeling of the, the stairs and the gossip mill that I, that I had to experience is very hard, but mm -hmm. speaking out and speaking up and defending myself for the first time in my life was hugely healing. That's yeah. something else that people need to weigh carefully because it is a very stressful and grueling and sometimes painful experience to go through a civil suit or a medical board. So you have to be in a place that you have support or know that it's not going to be easy. I definitely want to point out that the longer that you wait to come forward, I mean, at least pick somebody. Um, if there is evidence that, you know, that you would need if you ever did decide to come forward publicly, 
it's a lot harder to do, to get that evidence years later. So I always encourage folks, if you can possibly find somebody, one person to tell yeah, or and- create a journal or a log of everything, people you talk to, um, details, put together a diary so you at least have something if you were to ever to come forward. That's good advice. I wrote down everything. I wanted to remember everything in case I needed it for something. And that was what allowed me also to write a book later. But I also had evidence, like physical evidence that I wanted out of my house because I didn't want anything, anything that reminded me of my abuser be in my home. And so I put those things in a safe deposit box in case I ever needed them in case my civil Mm. suit went to trial, which it did not go to trial, luckily. But that's what I did for all that stuff. And I had journals and I put those in there too. And then when it was over, I destroyed all that stuff for got rid of it. Excellent. That's a very good tip. Put it away somewhere. What advice would you give to listeners who realize they're being abused by someone that they put their trust in, in a position of power? What would you advise them to do right now? Well, and this might sound simplistic, but they need to find someone and they need to tell because it is, that is a really hard first step because you feel like you're telling, I felt like I was telling on myself. I felt like, well, they're just going to be so horrified when they hear all these details and what I allowed. So you have to set your pride and your shame aside and just tell someone, give someone the chance to believe you first. I wasn't believed the first person I told, and that's happened to me before in my life. And then I shut down and became even more depressed and I stayed longer in the abusive situation. So I always tell people you have to keep telling because you may tell someone that isn't able to hear it or they're a victim themselves and they don't see the the signs just as you didn't. Or in my case, you know, telling the pastor's wife, it wasn't super convenient for her to bring this to light when he was a member of the church elder board. Um, So you may tell someone that it's going to cause them a lot of grief and heartache to deal with it. So they may not want to deal with it. And don't let that stop you from trying and for and, and giving up. Keep going until you're heard. Find an organization that, you know, deals with this and get the support you need. And just stay with that for a while. That's all you need in the beginning. And, you know, as far as civil suits and medical boards, there's time for that. Um, with a mm-hmm. civil suit um, or even criminal, if that is something, you know, that that someone wants to pursue. But with the lawsuit, be very careful who you reach out to as an attorney. If they are not trained in clergy or therapist abuse of adults, you're going to be hurt. And I was hurt by two attorneys that were very insensitive and didn't understand it and said, well, why didn't you leave? So make sure so that you're not re-traumatized that you go to somebody that understands it because they will support you and get you and hear you stand by you and fight for you as you should be treated. So that was just like a hard thing I learned along the way. And like Tell has certain, um, they have attorneys on their website that specialize in therapist clergy abuse. It is a great resource. And my listeners know that I'm a part of Mending the Soul Healing Group. Those are free. I'm a facilitator. I've been a facilitator for six years. And whether or not you want to go public with your story, you know, folks know that they can join one of these healing groups with other survivors and facilitators that understand what you've gone through and can help you process your trauma. So 
there's even a, there's a Facebook group that I'm a co-admin of called um, clergy or therapist abuse. You know, just going in a group like that can help you just relate with other survivors and know you're not alone. Yeah. My um, personal experience with Facebook groups is a negative one. Oh yeah. That can be dangerous. Yeah, there still are some some people on there that don't understand or give bad abuse advice or um, triggering. Um, so be careful with those Facebook groups. I would probably find a more private group to, um, to talk about this... that is completely confidential. That's the thing with Manning the Soul is it's completely confidential. Nobody can talk about what goes on in that group and what is said. Facebook is just, or any other social media can be really damaging if. And mending us all, how do people find that? Well, that it's uh, mendingthesoul.org. Their oh, website the is on okay. there. You can find a group in your area. And I even do groups on Zoom. Is that something you founded? No, I did not found it. It was founded by a ethics and theology professor here in Arizona. And his wife is a trauma counselor. And they started mending the soul because they, as a result of abuse in their own family, they had to deal with, and they developed the curriculum, curriculum for sex traffic victims, for, you know, teenagers. We have, uh, let's see, Native American for, let's see, they go to Africa at least once a year into places like the Congo, and they help people deal from extreme trauma, horrible, horrible trauma. I mean, the Congo is the rape capital of the world. And I've had Stephen Tracy on the show before. And yeah, Men in the Soul goes all over the world. So anywhere in the world, you can find a group. Are the groups virtual or are they in person? Some are in person. I have facilitated groups at my church. Um, but when the pandemic started, I had to switch to a Zoom group. So, um, and I've been able to help people all over the world that I wouldn't normally awesome. be able to help. I will add them to my website for sure. Oh, my resources. Yeah, that would be a great resource uh, for you. And I am so passionate about Mending the Soul because they have, I have seen the difference they've made. And again, it's, it's free for those who want to participate. And so definitely go on that website to get more information. There's lots of free resources on there. There's also SNAP, which is Survivors Network for those abused by priests. And they don't mm. just do Catholic abuse. They do clergy abuse in general. And I, they have groups all over the country as well. They used to be in person until COVID. Now they're virtual. Um, but I was told that they are trying to branch out into more like institutional abuse, you know, mm -hmm. coaches, therapists, teachers, things like that. So that's another. So needed. Yes. Free resources are so needed as well. Not everybody can afford to pay a professional therapist. Right. There's also Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate um, Recovery. Yes. I went yeah, to a church that did that. It's uh, for life's hurts, hangups, and habits. So it's, you don't have to have an addiction. Um, that's another resource. Yeah, I really like Celebrate Recovery. Great, great, great resource. And we don't want to forget about your book and how people can get a hold of your book because we left a lot of stuff out of your <laughs> yes, story <we> <laughs> because of time constraints. But you you really need to go and, and, get, and get Amy's book. It's really easy to read it. It's, yeah, the, the subject matter is, is difficult, but it's so very helpful and powerful. And I think everybody should read it. Thank you. Yeah. You can go to my website, which is www.amynordhues.com, which is A-M-Y-N-O-R-D-H-U-E-S as in Sam. 
and um, you can sign up to follow me and my blog there. And there's a, you can buy my paperback book online and then um, you can find my paperback or ebook on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Awesome. I think it only, it took me two days to read it, but I read pretty fast. <laughs> you definitely keep, keep our attention for sure. Thank you. I feel like it isn't just for people that have been abused by therapists. It's kind of got a wide reaching theme that would, that everybody could find something in it. We all probably know somebody that maybe suffering from this. Yeah. And if we've read this book, we would be able to help somebody else. Hey, I read this book yeah. from Amy Nordhues and, you know, there's some red flags going on here and let me help you. Yeah. Let me get you some help. So absolutely. I am so grateful that you came on the show today. Thank you so much for your time and for telling your story. I know it's not easy. Yeah. It isn't, but it's so powerful and you're going to help so many people. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.